Well, hello there, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Better Than Fine. My name is Darlene Marshall, and you know one of the really cool things about getting to do the show every week is that if you admire somebody and I'm into their work, I get an excuse to just ask them to hang out with me for a while. And I went back um, a little more than a year ago. I was working with NASM on the wellness coaching certification, certified wellness coach. Uh, and that was the first time that I heard about Dr. Allison Breaker and the fantastic work that she is doing, which we're going to dive into. But it was also all the cool things that Allison is doing, not just in her work, but with her work out in the world, out with competitive athletes and soldiers. Uh, and I could sit here and gush and gush and gush. But this is actually the first time that I'm going to get to talk to Allison after fangirling after her on the internet <laughs> for the last year and a half, which I think she knows. Hopefully it doesn't sound uh, too creepy to her sitting and waiting in the ring. So who is Allison Brager? Well, she's a neurobiologist. Her expertise is in sleep and studying circadian rhythm, specifically working with the United States military, uh, along with uh, many other high performance groups. She is uh, an active duty in the U.S. Army. And her work focuses on how do you create and sustain resilience in extreme environments, which I think is a fascinating application of a science that we talk about on this show pretty frequently in like, okay, how, how might we use this in our own lives, but how are we seeing it used out in, out in the world in places that we might never necessarily see ourselves, but we can also pull some lessons from. So Allison's worked with some heavy hitters, NATO, the NCAA, the Office of the Army Sermon General. Oh, right, and she worked on NASM Certified Wellness Coach. She's been to the CrossFit Games twice, which if you think I'm not gonna ask you about that, Allison, uh, you would be mistaken. So I am very excited to have her on the show. I'm gonna stop fangirling out super hard and welcome to Better Than Fine, Allison. Uh, thank you for such a kind introduction. It's awesome to be here, and it's nice to put a face to the name, having uh, worked so tirelessly and so long on the uh, wellness certification. But I know it's a great product. Yeah, it was super fun. Um, it was really fun to go through it and get to receive your work as opposed to uh, just having other people to, on the team tell me about how amazing you are, which I, I don't doubt for a second. And okay, so off script, I know this is not one of the questions I prepped, but I want to ask you, what what was it like competing at the CrossFit Games? I mean, the, competing in the CrossFit Games back in 2013, 2015 is a little bit different than now, um, but it was incredible. I, I mean, it's the closest in my life where I felt like I was a professional athlete, especially back then, because the games were in person, California. So the field that we used for some of the events in the tennis stadium for others. Those are the same courts in the same fields where David Beckham played, uh, where the Williams sisters played. So, uh, you know, there's gained inspiration from that. And then also too, having the, uh, the challenge of the ocean and particularly an ocean that is really dark and deep and cold and also it was uh, around great white shark migration season and all the other, you know, unknowns of, of big blue. That was, uh, that was def definitely a challenge of mental resiliency being out there knowing that, you know, you might not make it back to shore, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, it's a part of my life I'm grateful for. And there's definitely lessons learned um, that benefit how I study resiliency today. 
Yeah. I think, you know, when we talk about like, oh, studying resilience in extreme environments, like you're not just walking the walk or talking the talk, you're crossing the fit. <laughs> so that's in in incredible to, you know, I always am impressed by informed practitioners, right? Where you're not just studying the thing, but you're directly involved in application. And one of the things I really admire about your work is the ways in which um, I've seen you write about and, and talk about its application in real time in the army uh, and in the other avenues you you work in. So let, let's get into it because I feel like we're teasing the listener now. Um, you know, resilience has been such a big word these last few years. And I'd love to hear about how do you define resilience? And of course, sleep is a major tool that you study in terms of resilience. So um, define resilience for us. And then let's talk a bit about the relationship between sleep and resilience. Sure. Um, well, I would say there, I would argue there's probably 50 or more definitions mm. of resiliency out there. Um, but one of my favorite that I constantly go back to um, is I call it post-traumatic growth. Uh, and, and the reason why I like that one is because in order to develop resilience, you have to go through hard stuff. Now, it doesn't mean you have to go through hard challenges, either physically or emotionally or mentally to the point of trauma, but you at least have to push your system and your mind to a deeper place uh, that after that experience, you learn something for the benefit of you and your body from it, and you continue to demonstrate that behavior or demonstrate that uh, theory of mind or thought afterwards. Yeah, I'm so appreciate you mentioning the varying definitions of resilience. Um, you know, longtime fans of the show will know that it started as a positive psychology podcast. And, you know, one of the early guests back in the archives was uh, Rhonda Cornum. Yep. And, you know, her coming, and for anybody who doesn't know about Rhonda Cornum, um, Brigadier General, I think I have, I, I hope to God I have her title right, um, initiated the first resilience programming in the Army, Comprehensive Soldier Fitness. Yep. And it was this idea of how do, what is the difference between our soldiers and our deployed persons who um, are going through a challenging event and instead of, you know, everybody's heard of PTSD, instead of ending up in, you know, uh, post-traumatic stress trauma, people who go through the challenge and end up growing. And I'm so glad to hear you picking up that definition and idea of resilience and running with it. Um, I think she'd be really honored to hear the legacy still alive in the army. Well, I mean, I think it becomes even more important during deployment. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I've been deployed twice, once uh, to uh, overseas in the Middle East and another time uh, I was part of the COVID-19 deployment that set up the, the field support hospital in New York City. Uh, and that, you can argue that's a deployment because we knew nothing about the disease at the time and we were or, um, COVID and we were going into the belly of the beast and we had less than 48 hours notice, leaving our family, leaving our lives. and going to the, the epicenter of it. Um, but I, I think there's two stages of deployment where resiliency is built. One is the way over. Um, this sounds kind of grim and, and uh, dark, but um, I think if you practice gratitude leading up to leaving, that already puts you in a better place. Um, not to say you go to the, to the idea that you may not come back, 
But along those lines, you start doing things that you love and appreciate. So one of the things I did on both, I would say the deployment to the Middle East is I would eat at my favorite restaurants. I would enjoy my favorite desserts. I would hang out with my family and friends more than I ever would because there was always that possibility that I might not come home. Um, and then I think when you're out there, uh, you just meet so many people from different walks of life and you'll find out what an incredibly small world it is. Like I was on the most, the smallest, most forward deployed base in the entire world at the time. And I met people from my hometown who knew my brother or somehow we competed against mm. each other in track in high school. Um, and you just, I mean, you can, deployment can be a blast. Like, even the fact that we would watch bootleg movies uh, in a tent on like lawn chairs um, was, you know, just an experience that most people would not have back here in the United States. Yeah, uh, I remember we were during the Olympics too. So it was really cool to uh, have different countries represented and it was the winter Olympics. So of course there's a huge German presence on our base and the Germans most oftentimes win the most gold medals. So there's a lot of, you know, crap talking going on and things like that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for a few reasons. Like first as, as a New Yorker at the time, uh, thank you for stepping into the fire uh, for us at that moment. Cause it was intense to be a civilian. Um, I can't imagine what it was like going into the belly of the beast, as you said. Uh, and thank you for sharing with us, but you know, something that you just said that I want to circle back to, you know, so often in the wellness space, and in, even in the positive psychology space, we hear people talk about gratitude practice in these really shallow ways. And so I so appreciate you talking about gratitude in such a meaningful way, um, not only for yourself in that, like for your, for your mental game, right? Like it's not just a journaling practice. You're then turning around yeah. and living it. Um, so listener, you're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall. My guest today is the author of Meathead, Unraveling the Athletic Brain, which dispels myths about the dumb jock, because uh, she's definitely not a dumb jock. It's Alison Brager. Uh, you know, you are anything but that thing. Um, so I, you know, I just want to circle back to that appreciation of applied meaningful practice as opposed to kind of wishy-washy woo-woo practice. And, and use that as a leverage point to dive in a little deeper. You know, we're talking specifically in this episode around resilience and sleep. Can you tie that relationship for us? I feel like people talk about like, oh, sleep's important, but it isn't, so often it's not meaningful and grounded in anything. Yeah, so um, the easiest way to put it is, you know, years of research looking at sleep deprivation and the acute sense, so, Pulling an all-nighter, staying awake for almost two days straight, which is sometimes common practice during military training. I've done it myself. The longest I've ever been awake in a single instance is about 70 hours. Um, and uh, so you have the acute sense there, and then you have what's even more pervasive and more uh, detrimental, which is chronic sleep deprivation, where you're only getting four to five hours every night across a week when you normally need seven or eight. Um, what happens in both of these instances is, for lack of better words, there's hijacking of the emotional system and the logical decision-making uh, decision systems of the brain. Um, and so it's 
sort of creates this downward spiral where you get overly anxious um, and overreactive to all kinds of stimuli in the environment. It doesn't even have to be threatening stimuli. It could be neutral or happy stimuli, but your brain's going to immediately think of it as threatening. And then mm -hmm. when it comes to deciphering very complex information, you can't think quickly and you can't think and make accurate decisions. So it's uh, uh, that that's, you know, a very physiological definition of resiliency. Yeah. And, and I think you'd probably agree the, the physiological is creating the foundation for all of those other experiences, right? Like what I hear you describing is you're telling yourself, I only need five hours of sleep, but then anything that like heightens or stimulates that person, they're interpreting more negatively and they have less emotional self-regulation and compromise in their decision-making. So if you want something positive for yourself in your life, which I would assume a listener to this show probably does, it's not, it's not helping you in any way. It's a yeah. story you're telling yourself. Is that, would you agree with all that? Oh, absolutely. And so for us in the lab, we take, I should say, great pleasure and enjoyment when we just see the brain unravel and people who otherwise <laughs> sleep deprivation. Um, the easiest way we test it in the lab is, uh, it's called the PVT or the psychomotor vigilance test. And it's basically a test of reaction time, but it's also mm -hmm. a test of patience. So it's about a three-minute test. And basically across these three minutes, there's random dots that appear on the screen at random intervals. And so your goal is to tap the dot as soon as you see it. Uh, sounds pretty simple, but obviously after you do this 10 times, it gets annoying pretty quickly. And you see people just totally get frustrated who have been a wake for longer than they should have. They, they become like emotionally volatile. Um, they, of course, you know, have many false starts. They uh, have very slow responses. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, there's other ways to look at resiliency, but that in our field is the most uh, common gold standard and, and quite honestly, most uh, valid way to test it. So much so that we've even brought those tests down to Antarctica um, a few years ago, we did a study with uh, the Argentinian Navy down in Antarctica, um, where these people spent about a year down there. And six months of the year, they have zero access to the world. So it's sort of like being on the International Space Station. Um, they can't get access to food, water. If somebody has a medical emergency, they have to figure it out because there's no opportunity for them to be uh, medically evacuated. Um, and so taking these PV tests, PVT tests down there and studying resilience, sleep resiliency in extreme environments, um, we were just totally shocked uh, the, the amount of resiliency it takes to, to be down there in those conditions. Um, obviously, you know, it's not just physiological. You have to have the right mindset to be in a place like that for an entire year. Well, and what I think I hear you saying is that it's easier to maintain that mindset if you're like respecting your circadian rhythms. Yep, exactly. Um, and that's why I was really cool about this study in Antarctica is, you know, six months of the year, it's light outside all the time. Mm. Six months of the year, it's dark outside all the time. Uh, and these individuals that actually adapt their sleep system based on whether it's light or dark. So they either took multiple naps during the day of short duration, or they took a few naps of long duration. 
Um, and it's just really cool how adaptive our human body can be if, if we let it be so. Oh yeah. I mean, I want to nerd out with you so hard about all of, I so appreciate you unpacking the way that you're doing your research. I think so often, you know, in the fitness space, in the wellness space, we'd be like, there's research on this. Like you're the one actually doing the research where you're looking at like, okay, how frustrated is this person? How much are they losing their self-regulation? Oh yeah. And we're going to like lock them in the dark for six months with no way to be a medically evac. Um, you know, but I think the average person listening to this show probably is not going to compete in the CrossFit games or be deployed. Um, maybe some of them, we do have, we do have some military personnel, but, but most people are probably either concerned about their own resilience or mm -hmm. they're concerned about con coaching someone else's. Um, yeah. And when we're talking about sleep deprivation, we're talking about circadian rhythm, like where do you see that applied to the average person when you're talking about that adaptability and the relationship with sleep and how it affects our brains? Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, that's an interesting question you have because I think life is much harder here than it is when you're deployed. Like when I'm the, some days when I have a lot of overwhelming things to take care of, whether it's family, fitness, work, I will go in this mindset of like, oh, I wish I was deployed again where I only had like one job. Mm -hmm. um, so it is quite interesting. I, I do find life to be more stressful back here. Uh, but I think that the biggest thing, and, and, and this sounds so simple, but circadian rhythms, it's routine, right? It's an ability of your brain's biological clock to predict when things in the environment will happen. Well, the, easy way, the easiest way to keep the biological clock of the brain in sync is to have predictability and a schedule. So the more regimented and the more scheduled your life is, the better off your circadian rhythm will be and the better off your sleep will be because that is intricately tied to your circadian rhythm. Um, and, and what I say, you know, to, to bring it back to the military is, you know, soldiers who are back here, they have no excuse for some of the, the, the sleep issues sometimes because our schedules, honestly, at the end of the day, is are, it's very regimented. You do physical training at a certain time. You eat sleep, uh, eat lunch at a certain time. You, you know, you have a certain times locked off during the day for meetings. It, it's actually very predictable. Um, it's just a matter of uh, people wanting to embrace this predictability and to be intentional about scheduling. Yeah, that intentionality goes a long way, but I know it's something that even my own clients struggle with. Uh, you're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall. My guest today, on top of everything I've already said, oh, she was also a Division One track and field athlete, because, you know, why not one more thing to be awesome at? Uh, Allison Breger. So, you know, I hear you talking about circadian rhythm. You know, even just today, I had a client that I was working with who she likes the idea of spontaneity. Like she's kind of glorified the idea of just like doing whatever you want, but also recognizes how much better she feels when she does stick to some kind of structure in her day. And so I think there's this tension that between like this idea that we've glorified as a society of the person who has ultimate freedom versus like the biological physiological reality of like, being in a body that wants to be able to predict what's going to happen. Do you still, it sounds like you encounter that working with soldiers who are stateside. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I'm Professor Chaos too. That's <laughs> um, but you know, if you're, it, it, it kind of goes back to the basic instincts. So as long as you're have predictability about around when you eat, which is directly tied to the circadian rhythm, uh, there's metabolic sensors in our brain who that know when we're eating. Um, as long as you have predictability in your sleep and you have predictability in working out. Um, then, you know, chaos and stress. Otherwise, we have the ability to adapt to that. That you know, that's why the the fight or flight system, the HPA axis exists. It helps us manage that stress, deal with it, and move on. Now, if you're sleep deprived, then yes, you're never going to manage that stress. That's exactly what our studies, as I just alluded to, show in the lab. Is that whole system is hijacked from the emotional overreactivity to it to the illogical conclusions and assumptions that are made because uh, your brain's just clearly not thinking straight when you're sleep deprived. Yeah. So I hear you saying like consistent sleeping, waking times, consistent meal times, consistent like exercise exertion movement times um, so that the body and the brain can predict it. And then because you're dialing all that in stressors come, you process it and let it go instead of you feel that sense of overwhelm and that chips away at resiliency. And then you're carrying that around like rocks in the emotional backpack. Yep, exactly. That's a, that's a great analogy. So then let me ask you this. Um, I've, I've seen in your writing, I think it was even on the NASM blog, you wrote about soldiers who are hitting the end of the day and you described it as mind dumping, which I thought was a great phrase for it. Um, you know, you hit the end of the day, you tell yourself like, oh, today was stressful. I'm going to go, well, I'll let you, what's mind dumping? You define it. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, you don't, at the end of the night, what, what is done and is done. You know, as my track coach used to say in college, coulda, shoulda, woulda, like you're done with the day. There's no use ruminating on it. Uh, just mind dump everything and just get into this zen-like relaxed state and let your brain figure out the rest when you sleep because that's essentially what happens when you sleep anyway is as soon as you hit the deepest stages of sleep like REM sleep your brain is going to take all those memories and all those thoughts and all those facts and figures you learned from the day before and figure out which ones to keep and which ones not to keep and truly you have no control over that because you're mostly unconscious at the time and then you wake up and it's time to start a new day. Yeah. So I hear you saying like hit the end of the day, instead of telling yourself the story of like this day was stressful, I'm going to drink on the couch and play video games that like letting that go, recognizing that the past is past and then focusing on sleep and recovery. Cause that's actually going to be the more resilient strategy than like, let me Netflix and binge and drink a bunch of wine. Yeah, it's the most resilient. And like I said, you can't control what your brain chooses to keep and what it chooses not to keep. It's, you know, it, it does it itself. You have no control over it. I appreciate that your collegiate coach gave you useful advice. My collegiate rugby coach used to say, um, this isn't rock science, ladies. <laughs> so yours well, is way more useful. I did, uh, I did take rocks for drops in college. That was definitely one of the courses I took. There you go. I took GSI too. Um, yeah, so, up, you know.
Oh, I just thought rocks were cool. That's just me being a nerd. Um, so you've done, as I have alluded to many times in this episode, I hope to your great embarrassment and also maybe like ego pump, um, you've done some pretty incredible things in your life. Uh, some of them people only ever dream of and some of them people would never even think of. And I'd love to hear like, where do you pull your motivation from? Like what drives all of those incredible, cool things that you've, you've gotten to do? Um, part of it is upbringing for sure. I come from a very, uh, I guess you could say highly active, highly motivational family. Uh, you know, I want to say I've been diagnosed with ADHD, but uh, <laughs> I think probably my whole, whole family has it, but in a functional way. Um, yeah, so, exactly. So I, I grew up in a community that sort of prided itself on grit. Uh, is actually when I was growing up, Youngstown, Ohio was the most dangerous city in the country. Um, so you knew early on that your ticket out of town uh, to prevent yourself from either going to prison, being in a gang, or you know having a, a terrible life was to get a good education and to play sports. Uh, ESPN actually did a documentary on where I grew up. It's called Youngstown Boys, and it's pretty pretty common in our community. We, just, we have a lot of incredible athletes across the spectrum: football, boxing, basketball track and field. Um, so I, I was sort of lucky enough to be put in that community early on through circumstance. And then uh, even in college, right? Like I just always try to surround myself with people who are better than me. Uh, and even beyond college, just, you know, take the hardest classes, uh, put myself with people who who challenge the, the status quo, um, who, are constantly seeking to learn something new about the world and how it works. Um, and I keep pushing those barriers every day. Uh, one of the things I, I didn't tell you is uh, my, my lifelong goal is actually to be an astronaut. Yeah. Uh, and I made it to the second final round of selection uh, last year at NASA. Um, I have the opportunity to apply again because I am military and some of the military folks it takes two or three times um and i've sort of been told that sometimes nasa that's that's what they do they want to see if you're going to come back and if you truly want it uh so my you know my own professional career goals are far from being over um yet too it's just but the only way to keep getting there is to put myself in situations and around people who are better than me and you know think harder work harder because ultimately it's going to make you work harder and think harder Okay, I'm really nerding out super hard now. So I'm trying to control my like geek out. But um, part of my master's thesis was on the effect of self-transcendent experiences and how they motivate us to change and, and change our behavior. So if you do make it to space, you have to come on and talk to me about the Overwatch effect. Okay, deal? Okay, deal. You know anything about Overwatch? Sure. No, seriously, I, I absolutely will. Because, um, you know, especially if we're doing these long-term missions, um, it, sure, it's an engineering problem at first, but at some point, it's going to be a human endurance problem. Because as soon as you yeah. put humans on that craft, it's it, we don't know what's going to happen. But that's that's why we need research and people willing to to do that. Um, you know, I would I would gladly go on the one way Mars mission if I knew I was going to be going to Mars and not coming home. I, I'd still do it because it's important and I'd sacrifice myself in, in the pursuit of science. 
I argue about this with my dad all the time, actually, because I completely understand that psychological position. And he thinks it is like in some way negligent of humanity to ever send one on the, anyone on the one way. Um, but I, I absolutely get it. And like I said, I just come come back and talk to us about Overwatch and self-transcendence. <laughs> um, I could nerd out forever. I'm sure uh, this is getting old. But yeah. you're speaking at NASM Optima. I uh, am. Can you tell us about your session, please? Yeah, so we have an incredible roundtable session built on wearables. Um, it's always so funny how your graduate school for cohort, you sort of uh, reconvene at some point in your career, whether you know it or not. Uh, I've had that actually happen in the Army, but it's uh, happening too with NASM. Some of uh, the folks I went to grad school with or knew through grad school. Uh, yeah, we're ha we have a session on wearables where we're looking at the pros and cons of using them. Uh, covering the spectrum of what kind of wearables are out there. So not just um, wearables that track heart rate variability, heart rate uh, changes in sleep, uh, but also more, um, I guess, state-of-the-art ones that look at glucose monitoring, nutrient sensing, uh, and even analyze sweat. Uh, cool. So we have a whole session in terms of when to use them, when not to use them, how not to get so obsessed with the data because I think that's one of the, the problems we're seeing now in, in the wearable space. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I love Optima. It's one of my favorite conferences every year. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. I'm excited for your session. Um, I know my my partner struggles to not obsess about his aura numbers every morning. Um, it's like he comes like a little kid who's like showing me like, is it better? It's better, right? <laughs> Calm down, bub. I'm a um, I wear whoop, but... Uh, I was whoop, but I, um, kettlebells, I want to be able to wear it when I'm training. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I sit and, on their uh, Women Performance Collective. So they have this collective of female scientists where we sort of uh, created uh, education and um, the science around menstrual coaching. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, it, it, I don't know, it's been pretty cool to be a part of, but. You know. Yeah, that'd be an interesting one to maybe have you back to talk about, um, especially with the top, you know, I feel like so many people now are talking about wearables tracking menstruation, and then where's that data going? And you know, yeah, like, yeah. You could rabbit hole. Yeah, um, but I would love to have you back on and, and talk about there's so many things that, that you and I, I feel like could could jam on for a while. Um, but of course, it's about that time. Um, so first, I just want to thank you for for making the time to come on the show. Um, if anybody's interested in your work, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, so the easiest way is honestly Instagram. Uh, it's docjockzzz, so D-O-C-J-O-C-K-Z-Z-Z. Uh, I'm pretty active on there. Uh, and yeah, I'm more than happy to answer any questions. And then you can also, uh, my book, Meathead, Unraveling the Athletic Brain, I wrote it about 10 years ago. So in terms of the, the current state of the field of neuroscience, um, it's pretty advanced since I wrote it. But the reason why I wrote it is it's foundational knowledge for how exercise benefits brain health. Um, and, and that, you know, landmark research has stayed the same over the years. So while we've developed more sophisticated means to probe the brain to show how it benefits brain health, uh, the main outcomes of how it improves efficiency of how quickly the brain talks with uh, within a certain area or across certain areas, how the growth of new brain cells occurs, um, how we develop resiliency to stress. Uh, that's all the same. And it's, um, it's uh, it, again, it's meant to be a, a textbook for, for uh, the 
you know, the, the non-academic population. I feel like I just got inspired. I want to get like you, John Rady and Kelly McGonigal to do a panel to talk <laughs> about like movement and the brain and lifestyle. And, and there's so just so many different uh, layers around how movement um, affects the brain and affects our experience and just see if we can inspire some nerds to move their bodies more. Um, so that's all the time that we've got today. So if you like this show, hopefully you've gotten a lot out of uh, Dr. Breger and, and hopefully I haven't annoyed you too much with my uh, total girl crush, but you can review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You could like this show if you're watching it on YouTube, share it, follow us, um, subscribe wherever you're hearing the sound of our voices. Do you have some feedback? Well, you should find me. You can find me on Instagram. I'm darlene.coach or I'm off on LinkedIn. And now I'm even on TikTok. What? Um, but feel free to email me. I'd love to hear your questions, your comments, your thoughts, your feedback, your ideas for future episodes. And thank you so much for listening to Better Than Fine. Thank you.